Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Heroku in the Wild series. Hello, this is Greg Noakes, Master Technical Architect with Heroku. Last episode, we talked to Meg about building ThinkMD, why they built it, and what sort of audience that it addressed. On this episode, we'll be talking to Alex Broussard, the CTO of ThinkMD, about the technical challenges of building this sort of platform. Hi, my name is Alex Broussard. I'm the CTO of ThinkMD, and I came in shortly after Meg when they had built their alpha product, and I built the beta and now the current working version of ThinkMD. And I have a background in data and uh, founding and participating in startups uh, and other small businesses. So last time we really talked about the ground experience and delivering these services to these remote locations all over the world. As a technologist, I was thinking, you know, how do you do that? How do you deliver an application to these hyper-remote locations that have little or no service? Oh, well, one of the issues that we have is obviously bandwidth. Some of the partners that we have have not only not maybe a very good connection, but also a very low bandwidth connection. So having to optimize the application to work in those conditions can be challenging. It's somewhat similar to in the United States where if you have a very popular application, you're obviously trying to optimize it so it you know, doesn't take up a lot of room on the device, so it's easy to download. So we kind of face the same optimization needs, but for two different reasons. There, we're trying to do it really because you typically would build uh, an application to like a monolithic file. Maybe you have like one JS file, one HTML file, and maybe a vendor file. In these situations, we really have to shard them because let's say even a one megabyte download, if that thing fails, uh, it's gonna have to start over. Um, and so if you break that into 10 different files and it gets through three of them, and then for some reason there's an issue with the connectivity, when the application picks back up, it only has to download the remaining seven files and not start back over. So one of those is really understanding the, the challenges of kind of bandwidth uh, and poor connections and optimization. Uh, other challenges have been with state level sensors uh, and what they'll allow through. So we mm-hmm. have to really pipe all of our, everything that we use through the ThinkMD domain. We can't include any libraries from anywhere else. Um, everything has to go through our uh, domain because we ran into issues where for whatever reason, certain libraries or certain things that we are trying to include kind of dynamically wouldn't work. So. There's always like some little twist, um, depending on where we are, that we, we kind of have to be able to make an adjustment for and, and figure out. For sure. And one thing that I clued in on was that there has to be an offline section to this application or an offline experience, because you said when the app connects, you download these files and you get it set up. But that would mean that if I'm out in the field, maybe I don't have connectivity, but I still need to use the application. So I'm assuming that with connectivity, I download the files that installs the application, and then I can go ahead and go out in the field and utilize it without a connection. Is that is that true? Yes, that's exactly true. It was designed to be an offline first app. So using mm-hmm. 
know, the progressive web application technology and service workers in the back end. The whole app can be downloaded onto the device. You kind of get the feeling of you know a native application. That's kind of the, the idea. We have some access to system level components that you would if, let's say, you were creating an Android app. Not as robust, mm -hmm. but some of them, which allows us to give a pretty good experience in terms of having it offline and not connected to the internet. It will, you know, go through the assessments, store those assessments on the device for as long mm -hmm. as there is no connection. And then once, like, so a typical case would be someone would leave a, a clinic, go into the field during the day, not have connection, do a 50, 100 assessments. Uh, where they would get a full clinical uh, analysis, walk them through all the steps, explain potentially what they could have, uh, any steps they have to take, action items, uh, you know, taking the child to the hospital, giving them medication, all that would be kind of at the point of contact. So they would, you know, have an action plan right there. And then the data is stored on the device until they maybe come back to the clinic later that day or night. And once the connection was made, it would upload it to our servers so that you know we could do all of the reporting and epidemiology and clinical review of the data because we're constantly looking to see you know ensuring are we making the, the correct suggestions could there be any you know problems or issues with they say this particular location if we're in a zone that's very prone to malaria or during the malaria season that's definitely something that we want to look at to make sure that we're not under reporting or misreporting uh, any kind of um, conditions that we may be seeing in the field. Yeah, and another thing that I was that I was remembering is some locations they don't even have like full fledged smartphones, right? They have what are called feature phones. How did you approach that? I mean, do you have to build outside of the iOS and Android ecosystem? Yeah, so that was one of our reasons for doing a progressive web app and not doing an actual native uh, Android app. I mean, iOS is really kind of outside of the scope of things because it's not common at all uh, in mm -hmm. the places that we operate. So we're really on Android devices. And the reason that we chose to do a PWA is to potentially have that ability to work on feature phones. And a feature phone, you know, you can kind of think about maybe the first phone that you had, like a Nokia, something like that, that's very basic. Uh, however, you know, offers an incredible battery life also is you know less likely to break, doesn't require a lot of bandwidth to use, so it can obviously be very, very attractive. For us, we've looked at one of the mobile operators called KaiOS. You know, they provide an, an, an operating system for a feature phone where we've gotten MedSync to work on it. Hmm. Now, the, the kind of challenges here, and we also have an API that essentially drives all of the clinical logic uh, so it would work much, much like a REST API that you would, you know, like a typical REST API. And in fact, what we do is we have the REST API that has all the clinical logic, and that API is then compiled into a library that is then loaded onto the device. So that hmm. same uh, logic that drives our API is actually, you know, on the device and being used offline. And that's the solution we kind of had to come up with to be able to make it, you know, both work offline and online and provide... Um, some partners with the ability to roll their own kind of front end and just interact with their clinical API. So, so for the KaiOS one, it works because they they have a Chrome browser. It works mm -hmm. natively on their on their device. So that was pretty cool. There there are some adjustments you have to make because 
like scrolling is an issue. Um, you know, for us, the, the kind of, or on a smartphone, to be able to use your finger to, to kind of scroll is very intuitive and obviously works very, very well. Scrolling is not intuitive at all. It's, it's actually quite painful uh, on a feature phone. So that's a consideration we had to make. Uh, we had to get into a little bit more of mapping. So making sure that since you can't click on a yes, no, or a condition that the or an observation the individual might have, we have to kind of map it to keys. So one is no, two is yes, that kind of stuff. Um, and then also there's some clinical considerations too because um, at the end of the day, that, that also adds a little complexity to this whole thing. You know, we want it, we, we have to have it so it's a high-quality application. It has to pass pretty rigorous clinical standards. I mean, the two founders are doctors, so there's, I would say, zero compromise when it comes to mm -hmm. uh, them saying this is clinically accurate and it can go. So, you know, we can't be like, well, you know, this is good UX or this is that. It's like they don't care. It has to be yeah. clinically accurate. So. We have to balance all of that when we, especially when looking at a feature phone, which certainly has been a little challenging. We also have another um, implementation where it's via SMS messaging. So hmm. going direct, essentially, there is some worry about sending the community healthcare workers into the field and potentially yeah. bringing it with them. And so there's been an effort to kind of almost pre-screen individuals that may be having an issue that would like to see a community healthcare worker. And so they're able to actually interface with our system via text messaging, where they answer a series of kind of questions, integration then calls the API, and then says, okay, you know, you, you may have this condition, and then we're either going to send a CHW or they're going to give you a call. So we kind of have to keep, you know, the, all those capabilities, thanks to, you know, building on, building it as a PWA, and just kind of knowing that we would need maximum flexibility in terms of what the application can do, because there are so many unknowns. There's so many cultural differences. There's so many application differences. There's so many technical challenges. The idea was to keep the application as flexible as possible and not potentially paint ourselves in the corner by you know, make, maybe making an Android application that could do these things so that um, we could be very reactive to what was needed on the ground. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I assume that um, when that, that offline component can reconnect, then you're talking back to an application running on Heroku, correct? Yeah, the Heroku has been a really great in terms of not only, I mean, obviously there's the, the whole technical component and, and scaling and stuff like that, but also the kind of point and click DevOps that, that's offered through Heroku has been just great for us. I mean, a lot of the times before we do an implementation, there has to be quite a bit of reviewing that goes on, not mm -hmm. only just you know the language stuff because most of the languages you know we have some language capabilities in the office but you know we can't obviously cover all of those languages so there has to be a pretty thorough ling linguistic review there has to be a pretty thorough review by the implementer to make sure it, it adheres to whatever standards there or whatever um, study they're trying to do and then there has to be a clinical review by potentially um, one of the doctors that's part of that group and so being able to like spin up a review app, do all of our changes in that review app, and then provide that link to one of our partners to review everything, knowing that you know everything that's in case in that review app applies to just this implementation. We can get it looked at, we can get it tested, we can have it fully reviewed and signed off before doing the integration into the into the code and then pushing it live it is really really great. And so we've definitely leveraged that part of it. And also, you know, as a small company, not having to have a full 
a DevOps person on staff, and yet being able to have all that functionality has been just just awesome. Me, from a pure technical level, and I think all the other people in our company, the project managers, uh, Barry, to review the clinical logic, everyone else, I think, has been very pleased with you know what we've been able to do in terms of leveraging Heroku to get our application to the, into the hands of the people that need it. And I, I'm sure those review apps allow you to do a lot of QA on not only the localization, but also, like you said, the clinical accuracy of, of what you're delivering. Yeah, definitely. And then also having multiple you know, applications running has also been great. You know, For us, being based outside of the U.S. for most of our implementations is kind of critical. And so the first instance of Heroku, of course, I mean in the U.S. because we were, you know, moving from an alpha to a beta build. And then mm-hmm. we started, you know, I said, okay, we're going to see how this works because for the most part, the application runs offline. So the first time you do that initial download, it's on the phone. And there is not a lot of interactions with the server except to um, give the data back. But started running some issues, just some, you know, routing, latency issues. And so it's like, okay, I need to move this into somewhere across the pond there to get a little closer to, to Asia and Africa. And, I mean, couldn't have been a simpler system. You know, I just spun up a new Heroku app in that new region. I create a follower database to move the database over. And in a day, you know, we were live in, you know, out of, I think, your Frankfurt location. The next day, it was working a lot smoother, right? That little bit of reduced latency uh, you know, made a huge deal on the ground. So what does the QA process look like? I'm sure it's pretty stringent, but but can you kind of go into how stringent it is and, and, and what sort of guarantees you're giving to the, the local ministries that you're working with? It's incredibly stringent um, for multiple reasons. Uh, you know, we're treating this as if it were a medical application. And mm-hmm. so therefore, we're treating it as if, we have to adhere to the U.S. FDA standards in terms of testing and quality assurance. That means that you know there's definitely a lot more paperwork involved in it, uh, which is part of the quality process, ensuring that we're doing all, everything that we can to ensure a quality product, having the proper sign-offs, having the proper review, having the proper structure in which we develop and release code to adhere to that. And there's also the idea that our software is out there in the field and can mean the difference between life and death for somebody. So, you know, we also have kind of like that, you know, I say the two founders are doctors, that Hippocratic oath, right, to do it as well as you possibly can um, and ensure that what we're putting out there is, is a quality product. And finally, too, I think there's there's been a lot of issues sometimes with, software that's not that good or hardware that, that's not that good, that it's been kind of deployed into lower middle income countries that has not worked very, very well and has been a huge problem. And so I think there's definitely a sensitivity to that both on our parts and also that of our implementers and partners that, you know, they want to be sure that what they're going to be using is quality and good. And so we've done everything we can on our end to ensure that, you know, that's not saying that there's not bugs that get by and things like that. Sure. But obviously it's, it's top of mind to ensure that what we put out in the field is, is of the highest quality. And so besides adhering to the FDA quality uh, process, um, we have an incredibly rigorous 
series of uh, tests on the clinical logic that test you know potentially every edge case, every potential combination of logic, um, every way that we can to try and you know for lack of a better case break it to ensure that you know we we, we never get a false positive and that we can be assured that when we do push it live that the clinical logic is as bulletproof as we can make it. And that probably goes back to something we were talking about in the first episode where overcoming kind of the trust barrier and the cultural barrier, having that quality product and being able to show that it does work and show evidence that it has worked in other locations can probably help push you over that trust barrier and and get folks at least nodding that, that yes, this is something that they want to explore more. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I mean, the company is full of people that have been working in this field for a lot of years that have built up great relationships um, with NGOs, with the other implementers. And we have, I think, a very good reputation out there uh, based on the ones that they brought into the company and then kind of the ongoing success that we've had with our implementations that help, you know, kind of build that. And so we started off relatively small. I think the first few times we we did our we, we put MedSync out in the field, it was maybe you know a few hundred assessments, and every single mm-hmm. time it's grown since then. You know we've used the data to validate the clinical logic. We've published numerous research papers, kind of explaining and showing that what we have does work, that it can be trustworthy, and it's kind of grown from there. But but certainly you know trust is a, is a big part of, you know, success, I, I think, in this in this ecosystem. Another thought I had was that the localizations you have to do, I mean, I've worked with some apps that are that are localized for for different European countries. And I've seen like those those customers of mine have had to spin up, you know, 30 different applications, each for a different locale because they were so different and the code bases would be slightly different. How do you approach that, you know, being in all these different countries with all these different cultural norms and all these different languages? How, how do you approach that, that localization problem? You know, localization is definitely non, non-trivial. Besides the just language part of it, you also have the numbers and digits, which, which can, be a little, can be a little challenging. When we built the app, we decided to use Vue. A JS to drive the front end, and that has proved to be a, a very, very good decision between Vue and Vueify, which is the uh, a wrapper around Google's material design, has mm-hmm. really helped us with the localization part uh, because the Vueify kind of has built in right to left, so that solved that that main issue of you know having to flip the entire user interface, the application for those right to left languages not having to worry too much about the front end, knowing that it was kind of baked into the library that we we're using, allowed us a little bit more flexibility on the back end to think about, okay, how can we essentially do this right? The long and short of it, there's, you know, the solution isn't perfect, but we're able to not only be able to translate the app into, I think we're at like 13 or 14 different languages now, but able to consistently um, add translations by having a very clear definition of what is kind of like generic language that's for the application and what's specific to partner implementations. And mm-hmm. also being able to use a partner that helps us with the base translation. So 
typically what we'll do is if we know that we have to go into a country where we don't have a translation, we can export all of the tokens in English of the application. Our translation partner takes the first pass, does as good a job as they can because some of the language is technical, some of the language is clinical, but let's say they'll mm -hmm. get 80% of it translated. And then we actually, as you say, we both hand that spreadsheet to uh, the partner that we're working with so they can review, but then we put in the application also. So we load that up so they can actually see it within the context. And then they'll go through and help us make any edits or changes that are specific to their locale and region. And so knowing that there can be a lot of very nuanced changes, uh, we built that into the application, the ability to be very, very specific about languages. And uh, you know, we may have potentially two applications in two different regions of the same country and they may have not a lot, but maybe like 15 or 20 different changes in the language. We're able to handle that and roll it out so that they can have, you know, really like fine-tuned localization uh, of whatever language that they're they currently need or potential dialect that they want to implement in. That's awesome that you're able to deliver that that much of a targeted experience where you can, like you said, target two different regions that are that are fairly close, but have similar but different dialects. Do you have on the back end, do you have different applications that deliver each of these or, or are you using some sort of a abstraction layer across a single application? No, this is a single application um, and it's kind of a, you know, model as software as a service. And so mm -hmm. it really comes down to the configuration, right? The front end is, is pretty, I mean, dumb is the right answer, right? It just has all the front end code and it's expecting a configuration file. And that configuration file is what really drives the application. It sets up the languages, it brings in the translation, it will dictate um, what are the conditions and tracks because you know there's different questions that you wanna ask for um, maternal, so pregnancy, post-pregnancy versus a child versus a newborn. So those are all configured based on you know working with our partners, saying what their target is, what they're looking for, the conditions that they're looking for specifically. So all that's part of the configuration process and then gets um, sent to the app in a config file, which then drives the front end from there. So in there would be the language choices too. In certain areas, we may just need two languages. In others, like for our COVID tool, we have in the 13 or 14 different translations. So that's all configurable per implementation. So any advice you'd like to give to anybody who's looking at, at building, you know, a multi-regional application targeted at these sort of low latency countries like this? Yeah, well, I think we just talked on it, you know, really understanding uh, the, the language localization and, and building that in from the beginning is critical. Ensuring that there's a pipeline for not only adding the languages, but getting them translated and updating those translations it kind of has to be thought of from the beginning or it's going to be really messy because you're going to go back and having to constantly kind of fix. And I say that because yeah. we rewrote the language thing, I think, three different times. And I think this time <laughs> we finally got it, maybe not right, but we're probably like one rewrite away from from having it dialed in. So, And that was a consideration that I knew going into it, I just didn't realize how complex it was, especially with all the clinical logic too, because all of the, the treatments and the dosings and stuff like that, they are also all, you know, 
can be localized. That's definitely one step of it. The other you know, consideration too is, is definitely, you know, as I was saying before, it's funny because the same needs for optimization of the code, the code base, the downloading the application um, are needed in this ecosystem just as they are in a modern one, but for very different reasons, right? So because of bandwidth, because of latency, because of you know bad connections and, and older devices, you know a lot of Android five, Android six devices are still floating out out there. But kind of understanding what it means to really optimize an application and bring that to the forefront is kind of critical from the beginning. Because a lot of times we have a tendency, and you know we I did also of of kind of building something first for functionality, and then going back in and saying okay now I'm going to potentially optimize that, but the issue with that approach is, you know, sometimes you paint yourself in a corner. There's things that you, you should have really valued before uh, you started building that maybe you pushed aside and saying, oh, I can fix that later, and you realize that, no, I really can't fix that. And so really understanding that that optimization has to come first, localization and cultural stuff has to come first when you're going into this, I think it will end up saving, you know, someone who's trying to do the same thing quite a bit of time moving forward. Thank you for joining us for these two special episodes of Codish. I know that I learned a lot about the challenges of building a globally distributed platform with very low bandwidth requirements, sometimes unconnected bandwidth requirements, and also about the reasons behind building this sort of platform. Till next time. Thanks a lot for having us, Greg. It was a pleasure. Great, thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of the Heroku podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.